Hey, everybody. It is Monday, January 29th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, how was your weekend? A weekend with kids, Moshe. What can I say? The huge <laughs> driving <Okay>. them around, <laughs> going from activity to activity. We did celebrate my brother's birthday on Sunday night, which was a lot of fun. So, yeah. So I have a shot of uh, if I order an Uber in your area of you picking me up. (laughs) That's basically what goes on. Good to know. Five stars. There's a funny meme on Instagram that's like, my daughter's living her best life and I'm her driver or something like that. And it's it's pretty much how I feel these days. Moshe, how was your weekend? Good, good. We stuck in the city. Uh, If anyone's traveling or lives in New York City, there's a uh, relatively new place called the Tin Building that is downtown. It's like a whole bunch of restaurants and shops and stuff that's pretty cool down on the on the east side uh, of the city. So we checked that out. And then on Sunday, uh, I had the privilege of being part of a read at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Over the weekend was the International Holocaust Remembrance Day. So they did a reading of Elie Wiesel's Night uh, and invited several dozen of us to read various portions of the book which is very cool. Juliana Margulies, uh, Joshua Molina were among the readers, so had a chance to meet them. And I thought it was a really powerful event. Look, every year there are going to be fewer Holocaust survivors left. And so retelling the stories of survivors is basically the way to keep the stories alive. We are all now the witnesses for these witnesses. We are part of the last generation that got to hear from firsthand witnesses. Right. So it's incredibly important to, to keep their stories alive. And Moshe, it was also a very busy weekend for news. So let's get to some headlines here. Three U.S. troops were killed in a drone attack. President Biden points the finger at Iran. And there are now calls for the U.S. to hit Tehran. What do we know and what could happen next? President Biden and a group of bipartisan lawmakers on the verge of a major deal on immigration. Although standing in the way is former President Trump. What is in it and will it pass? And it comes as the battle on the border between Texas and the federal government continues to escalate. Back overseas, some accusations that U.N. workers were involved in the attacks on October 7th. And now the U.S. and other countries are pausing funds for that organization. Donald Trump ordered by a jury to pay an additional $83 million to E. Jean Carroll in a defamation case. Those Boeing 737 MAX 9 flights back up and running following inspections. And a notable thing an Alaska Airlines executive did on one of those first flights this weekend. Plus, fake nude AI images of Taylor Swift are forcing Twitter to shut down any searches of her name at all. And now Congress wants more action. Plus, the Super Bowl matchup is set. Yeah, speaking of Taylor Swift, her boyfriend is in the game again. And Moshe has on the stay in history. Jill, what better thing to mark on this Monday than Dolly Parton's working nine to five? (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Okay, three U.S. service members were killed and about three dozen soldiers were wounded during an unmanned aerial drone attack on U.S. forces that were stationed in northeastern Jordan near the Syrian border. This happened on Sunday. It is the deadliest day for U.S. troops in the region in years and comes amid escalating tensions with Iran in recent months. President Biden blamed Iran-backed groups for the attack. In a statement, he said, quote, while we are still gathering the facts of this attack, we know it was carried out by radical Iran-backed militant groups operating in Syria and Iraq. 
He said the U.S. will, quote, hold those responsible to account at a time and a manner of our choosing. We shall respond. There have been more than 160 attacks on U.S. bases in the region by groups sponsored and armed by Iran since mid-October. There were no U.S. troop deaths and only some minor injuries until now. While the United States has thus far maintained an official line that Washington is not at war in the region, it has made strikes against targets of Yemen's Houthi groups that have been attacking commercial vessels in the Red Sea. Sunday's attack targeted a facility known as Tower 22. The base houses about 350 U.S. troops. It's located in the northeastern part of Jordan along the country's shared borders with Syria and Iraq. And they are among several thousand U.S. troops in the region focused on preventing a resurgence of ISIS, the terrorist organization that took over large swaths of Iraq and Syria a decade ago until a U.S.-led military campaign left the group decimated, although the group still has some military capabilities. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons the U.S. has maintained a presence there, including at this base. In a statement, the Iranian-backed militias, they call themselves the Axis of Resistance. These are multiple groups across the region. They claimed responsibility for the attack, saying it was, quote, a continuation of our approach to resist American occupation in Iraq in the region. It comes actually there's a conversation happening within Iraq about U.S. troops finally leaving the country. Remember, there was the war in 2003, the big invasion. Obama pulled out troops in 2011. ISIS took off. And so the U.S. put troops back into Iraq in 2014. We now sit here 10 years later. Iran basically controls Iraq. And so some Iraqi officials saying, America, get out. Uh, and so now you have these more militant wings that are attacking using the excuse and the shield of Iran to attack U.S. forces. So as you mentioned, Jill, Biden says he's going to react. But many Iran hawks, including a number of Republicans in Congress, came out on Sunday saying the U.S. has shown weakness here. After months of attacks, it's inspired Iran to continue to take things up a notch. And now there are three dead Americans. Here's just a taste of what you're hearing from the Senate Republicans right now. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said the administration needs to impose, quote, serious crippling costs on Iran immediately. Tim Scott from South Carolina said it is time to hold Iran accountable. Appeasement must end. Lindsey Graham, his colleague from South Carolina, hit Iran now, hit them hard. John Cornyn, the Republican from Texas, target Tehran. Tom Cotton from Arkansas, we need to have a devastating military retaliation. Anything else will show that Biden is, quote, a coward. I could go on, but you have a sense of where Republicans are coming at uh, Biden here. And there are some Democrats, by the way, who feel that Biden has not been aggressive enough in his reaction to the 160 attacks we've already seen from Iranian proxy groups. Now, the White House is saying we want to avoid a war. We want to avoid an escalation here. But remember, there's these three deaths that happened over the weekend. That's in addition to the two Navy SEALs that were killed interdicting a uh, Iranian boat that was bound for Houthi rebels uh, off the coast of Somalia. Remember, those two SEALs went missing. They were eventually declared dead. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Charles Brown, on Sunday was interviewed in a couple places. He said, we don't want to go down a path of greater escalation that drives to a broader conflict in the region. Asked on ABC whether he thought Iran wanted war with the U.S., he said, no, I don't think so. So now what happens? Well, typically what happens here in the Situation Room, probably already happened yesterday, is the Pentagon officials, top intel officials, will present the president with a list of targets, ranging from proxy groups in Iraq and Syria, various Iranian bases, uh, Iranian leaders across the region, and even military targets inside Iran as well as at sea. 
And then effectively, they'll go through those targets saying, you know, what's an eye for an eye here based on what the Iranians just did uh, to the American soldiers there? And uh, what is the potential reaction once the U.S. attacks that? That's effectively what Biden would ask for in that scenario. That's what presidents do. So the question is, what should the U.S. do to get Iran to stop this, but not so much that it crosses a red line and leads us to a larger war? And that would be a concern if the U.S. was to go down that list and actually attack targets inside Iran, that could cross a red line for Iran, which would then escalate things further. So if you're betting right now, you could expect to see, if not already overnight, uh, attacks on various Iranian targets in the region or, again, in the Persian Gulf. So that's something uh, to look out for here. But again, the U.S. is very reluctant to you know, escalate things to all-out war. At the same time, though, you have three Americans dead here, three dozen injured. It's a significant attack. And the feeling in Washington, among many, is that Biden needs to communicate to the Iranians that this is completely unacceptable and needs to stop immediately. Most between this attack now, between what's going on with the Houthis attacking vessels in the Red Sea, a potential serious escalation between Hezbollah and Israel, is the feeling that it's just a matter of time before this really erupts? Or is the thinking that cooler heads will prevail here? Well, if the gut reaction is that Iran does not want direct war with the U.S., which it can't afford, right? Look at the size of the U.S. military. Look at what it would, that would do to Iran. That ultimately, this is Iran poking and sh- being as aggressive as they can and seeing what they can get away with. But, you know, you got to k- kind of take each of those piecemeal. The Hezbollah situation is more of an Israel-Hezbollah situation. The Houthis, you know, God knows what needs to happen there. I mean, ultimately, you need the war in Gaza to end that potentially could de-escalate things. But that's its own situation, and that's going to continue probably unabated for a while. The big concern is this, right, that now there's American soldiers who have been killed in an Iranian attack. And, you know, what is going to be sort of the deal made, the sort of accepted deal? Again, it's not a deal, but effectively, you know, Iran's like, oh, we just killed some Americans. We should probably expect retaliation for that. Then Iran will have to say, well, we have to retaliate for what you just did. What will that be? Unclear. Remember when uh, Trump killed Soleimani back in 2020, everyone was like, oh, my God, World War Three. The Iranians ended up doing like nothing. They like sent a couple of missiles at a U.S. base in Iraq. No one was killed. Uh, And that was that. So they'll have to figure out something that they can do in retaliation to what the U.S. does that saves face. But again, hopefully that ends it. But again, that's something we have to watch here, Jill, uh, because right now you have the Iranians and the Russians feeling particularly powerful and particularly like they can get away with stuff. Uh, And so President Biden and the U.S. military have to show that, uh, you know, this needs to end and end quickly. And by the way, that's just the foreign angle. Then there's the domestic angle. Jill, we're in an election year. And, you know, this is something that Trump and Republicans will hit Biden over the head with politically saying, like, look at the weakness that you're showing abroad that doesn't tend to play well with voters in election year. So there's both domestic implications as well as foreign implications here for Biden. Speaking of politics, we're watching the immigration standoff in two places as we begin a new week. First, tensions between the U.S. government and the state of Texas on the border continue to escalate. And then there's the political battle over a new border bill. So we'll start in Washington. A bipartisan group of Democrats and Republicans in Congress is on the verge of striking a deal with the Biden administration that would enact sweeping new border controls. It includes the authority to pause asylum processing during spikes in migrant crossings. After weeks of closed door negotiations, the White House and a trio of senators could unveil an agreement as early as this week. 
The bill is designed to reduce the unprecedented levels of illegal crossings recorded along the southern border in the past three years. While Republican Senator James Lankford, Democratic Senator Chris Murphy and Independent Senator Kirsten Sinema are close to finalizing the compromise with the White House, any proposal would still face an uphill battle in the House. That is where Speaker Mike Johnson and other conservative lawmakers have pushed for even stricter changes to the asylum system. Divisions among Republican lawmakers over whether to support a border deal with Joe Biden have also intensified after former President Trump came out against it. He has told Republicans not to do a deal with Biden and instead wait for him to come back to office. So this was from a Trump rally in Nevada over the weekend. We cannot let this happen to our country as the leader of our party. There is zero chance I will support this horrible open borders betrayal of America. It's not going to happen. I noticed that and I'll fight it all the way. I noticed a lot of the senators, a lot of the senators are trying to say respectfully they're blaming it on me. I said, that's okay. Please blame it on me, please. Mosh, immigration has become a top issue for voters and the Trump campaign does not want to lose it even as everyone agrees that the situation on the border is an urgent crisis. As I said, this deal is expected to grant the executive branch the authority to pause asylum processing during spikes in migrant crossings. And it is also expected to raise the standard to accept asylum seekers and expand expedited deportation authorities. Yeah, if I took Biden's statement over the weekend where he was talking about shutting down the border uh, and deleted his name and asked you whether that quote came from Biden or Trump, Many of you might be like, oh, that's totally a Trump quote. That is where we've reached now on the border in terms of the crisis, right? where Biden is literally saying, I'm ready to shut down the border. So again, we're waiting on the final language of this deal. But under what's been uh, put out there, uh, the proposed deal, the Department of Homeland Security would be granted the authority to shut down the border if the daily average migrants crossing reach 4,000 over a one-week span. Uh, and by the way, we have days recently where we've seen seven or 8,000 people come across in a day. So this would probably be pretty effective pretty quickly. Uh, certain migrants would be allowed to stay if they prove they were fleeing torture or persecution in their countries. Remember, it's impossible to close the border to asylum seekers because of current U.S. law that goes back decades. In fact, Trump tried to do it multiple times while he was in office and was shut down by the courts. So that's among the provisions here, though the senators were out over the weekend saying, please, everybody, wait for the final language before you criticize it or get concerned about it, including that was linked for the Republican saying, you know, Trump, wait for the details here uh, before you try to get people to vote against it. It does come, as I mentioned, the White House, Biden have had to move far to the right here on this issue. Just last year, they said, stop using the word crisis to describe what's happening on the border. And now it is, a, in fact, a crisis that the, even they agree is a crisis. Republicans see a huge opportunity here uh, to do more to get control of the border. It's something they've been asking for for a while. It's why Mitch McConnell and others have said, let's make a deal here. And Trump saying, whoa, this is a big issue for me this election year. Please don't make a deal. So we'll see what happens there. Meanwhile, staying in Washington here for a second, House Republicans over the weekend took a significant step forward in their effort to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, over uh, what they say is uh, neglect over the border. They have now formalized impeachment articles, two impeachment articles. One says that Mayorkas displayed a, quote, 
willful and systemic refusal to comply with the law. The second article argues that he breached public trust by making false statements and obstructing lawful oversight. The Department of Homeland Security responding, saying Republicans have undermined efforts to achieve solutions here. They're ignoring facts. They're ignoring legal scholars. They're ignoring the Constitution. They think the whole thing is nonsense, but Republicans see an opportunity here to, again, in an election year, impeach the Homeland Security Secretary. They're set to uh, look at the articles of impeachment on Tuesday. The House Committee is. You can imagine that passes. It would then go to the floor. Speaker Johnson does not have a date yet for an actual impeachment vote on the floor. That would be impeachment, remember. Uh, But it would be pretty anticlimactic. Yes, remarkable, but also anticlimactic. It would be only the second time in history that the House has considered to remove a cabinet official. The last time we saw that was the 1870s. But the Senate, controlled by Democrats, you actually need two-thirds of the Senate to uh, convict and remove someone after impeachment. That's something we learned during the Clinton impeachment and during both Trump impeachments, and they didn't have the votes. So there's no way Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is impeaching his own party's Homeland Security Secretary. So this is sort of just a rhetorical political thing by House Republicans. Uh, Democrats, again, say there's no legal basis here, that they haven't offered evidence, and this is basically making a joke of the impeachment process. But Republicans are pretty serious about this, so that's another headline we're watching on this front. Meanwhile, down on the border, the battle between Texas and the federal government over who has final authority to deal with undocumented migrants continues. So Texas's attorney general on Friday forcefully rejected a request from the Biden administration to grant federal immigration officials full access to a park along the southern border that the state National Guard has sealed off with razor wire. For three weeks, the federal government in Texas have clashed over Shelby Park It is a city-owned public park in the border town of Eagle Pass that was once a busy area for illegal crossings by migrants. Texas National Guard soldiers deployed by Governor Greg Abbott took control of Shelby Park earlier in January and have since prevented Border Patrol agents from processing migrants in the area. The Department of Homeland Security, which oversees the Border Patrol, had given Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton until Friday to say that the state would relent and allow federal agents inside of the park. On Friday, however, Paxton denied that demand, saying Texas state officials would not allow DHS to turn the area into, quote, an unofficial and unlawful port of entry. Yeah, so literally it's a park, and they've blocked off the feds from this. Now the feds have to go to court to access the park where they're processing people. And Texas is like, no way, no how. This is what we're doing, and you have not done enough, and so we're stepping in here. And so we told you last week about the whole razor wire fence debate that's happening. Uh, By the way, Border Patrol came out over the weekend, Jill, and said, we don't even have time to cut down the razor wire at this time, even though the court has granted us that authority. And we're trying to work with Texas authority. So it feels like there's multiple layers happening here. And even there's some people on the federal level who are like, let's just keep up all the fencing and every type of thing we have up right now to block people from coming across the border. A reminder here, immigration enforcement is officially federal responsibility. Keep in mind, you know, it would be chaos if California had its own foreign policy and New Mexico had its own foreign policy and Arizona and Texas in regards to the uh, Mexico border, right? If they all had their different rules. That's why it's been respected for a couple centuries now that the federal government and its case law deals with immigration policy. So you can't have a chaotic system of all 50 states doing their own immigration policy. But Texas here has been arguing that as far as illegal uh, immigrants is concerned uh, and migration, that the government feds are not doing enough and they're stepping in here. And Abbott 
over the weekend, got the support of 25 of his fellow governors. Now, keep in mind, they're all governors with R after the name. They're all Republicans. Basically, every Republican governor in the country, except for the Republican governor from Vermont, came out in support of Abbott over the weekend uh, and his fight against the federal government. So multiple court cases here, as we're seeing what's happening in Washington, as we're seeing the impeachment thing, as we're seeing the campaign trail. So immigration, immigration, immigration will be one of the huge stories of the year here. All right, we have a lot more to get to in the podcast today, but I want to thank one of our sponsors this week, Factor. We're definitely pressed for time in our house, but we still want to eat healthy. We want to eat nutritious. And that's why we've been so excited to bring Factor aboard as a Mo News partner. They are America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service. This is not your grandma's or your parents' frozen food. This is chef-prepared, dietitian-approved, ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. All you have to do is heat them up. Uh, They come you put them in the fridge. Uh, They're good for a number of days. And it saves you the trip to the grocery store. It saves you the chopping and the prepping and the cleaning up, but you're still getting the flavor, nutritional quality that you need. Jill, I know you guys have tried them in your house. We tried them in our house. Uh, They're delicious. You get a choice of 35 weekly meals and it's flexible to your schedule. You can, you know, anywhere from six meals a week, 18 meals a week. Uh, You can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Again, they come ready to go, ready to heat up in just two minutes. Uh, in fact, they also have a whole bunch of chef-prepared uh, meals they can send you that don't require even you know a zap in the microwave. Uh, they also have cold-pressed juices, shakes, smoothies. Uh, you can head right now to factormeals.com slash monews50. That is factor, F-A-C-T-O-R, factormeals.com slash monews50 for 50% off. Again, the code is monews50 for 50% off. Definitely check them out. Time now for the speed read from Reuters. The United States, the UK, France, and several other countries cut funding to the UN Palestinian Refugee Agency called UNRWA after the agency fired a dozen employees for participating in the October 7th Hamas terror attack. UNRWA fired the employees after Israel provided them with corroborated evidence of the aid workers Working with Hamas, the agency said it is investigating the claims further. The agency has operated 58 refugee camps over the last 75 years in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip. The U.S. is by far the biggest donor to UNRWA, giving about $350 million a year to the agency, more than a billion in the last few years. Hundreds of millions more are now frozen as other countries have also joined in this pause. UNRWA pushed back this weekend, calling on countries to reconsider their decision, saying that the U.N. agency acted responsibly and began an investigation. They say, quote, we urge countries that suspended funds to reverse their decision. And it comes after other accusations that a U.N. agency employee held an Israeli hostage in their Gaza apartment and thousands of employees posted celebratory social media posts after the October 7th attack. The Israeli government is now calling for UNRWA to leave the Palestinian territories and no longer operate the camps, given these latest developments. And most this all comes as American-led negotiators are edging closer to an agreement in which Israel would suspend its war in Gaza for about two months in exchange for the release of more than 100 hostages still held by Hamas. Certainly nothing is final, but the hope is that a deal could be signed in the next week or two. Yeah, a lot of developments here in regards to the Israelis and the Palestinians over the weekend. As far as that deal, the CIA director traveled to Paris yesterday, William Burns, to talk with the Israelis, Egyptians, Qataris. Uh, The U.S. will send further folks to the region 
if they get closer to finalizing a deal. Right now, there's a written draft agreement merging proposals offered by Israel and Hamas, respectively, over the last 10 days and putting it into a basic framework. There are a number of disagreements they have to work out here, but they are cautiously optimistic that a final accord is within reach. Uh, So we'll see what comes of it. Right now, it looks like it's two phases, and it would be much more expansive than that deal back in November. In this first phase, fighting would stop for about 30 days while women, elderly, and wounded hostages are released by Hamas. During that period, the two sides would then work out a second phase that would suspend military operations for another month in exchange for Israeli soldiers being held by Hamas, as well as male civilians. They got to figure out the ratio. Remember last time Hamas demanded three Palestinian prisoners for every one Israeli hostage. So that still has to be negotiated. They believe that that is solvable. The deal would also entail more humanitarian aid into Gaza. Now, again, this would not be a permanent ceasefire. And that's something Hamas has demanded for the release of the hostages. But they believe that a 60-day deal, which is effectively what the Israelis have been proposing in the last week, uh, if you already go two months without war, the hope is that that would effectively end the war. Uh, Jill, one other development that took place on Friday morning that we just want to update you on for the pod listening audience, the UN International Court of Justice made an interim ruling on Friday. This is the uh, accusations by the South Africans that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. So the ruling on Friday that came out from the 17 justices of the International Court of Justice here just deals with the initial request by South Africa to demand a ceasefire. In this initial ruling, the court said that the overall case has standing, meaning it's plausible that genocide could be happening, but we'll deal with that at another time. There'll be some sort of trial that could be years out. As far as the South African request to demand a ceasefire, the court rejected that, but did demand that the Israelis do their best to prevent genocide, prevent civilian casualties, stop and punish extreme rhetoric, and allow in more humanitarian aid. They also, in the ruling, called on Hamas to release the Israeli hostages. Again, this is an initial emergency ruling by the court. They did not call for a ceasefire, but did determine that the case has standing. Uh, Remember, the Israelis, the U.S., the U.K., Germany all said that the case is meritless here, that there's no genocide happening, that no ruling at all is necessary. Uh, Ultimately, though, the court's saying, we're going to look into that. And uh, the reaction on the other side, South Africa, the Palestinians, Hamas, all issued uh, support for the ruling and the trial ahead. And that all comes as the death toll in Gaza uh, surpassed 26,000 over the weekend. About 40% of those, according to the Israelis, are fighters of Hamas uh, and the rest civilians. From the Associated Press, a federal jury on Friday said Donald Trump must pay E. Jean Carroll a total of $83.3 million in damages for defaming her in multiple statements. Carroll's lawyers had asked the anonymous nine-person jury for heavy damages against the former president, Carol is a former columnist. She was awarded $18.3 million in compensatory damages and $65 million in punitive damages. Friday's defamation damages are in addition to the $5 million that Trump already was told he'll have to pay Carol last year. That is when another jury found that he was responsible for sexually abusing her in a department store in the mid-1990s and then defaming her. Trump then went on to attack her dozens and dozens of times after that first verdict leading to this latest defamation trial. Carol argued that those attacks led to constant threats and harassment from Trump supporters. One attacker reportedly told Carol to, quote, stick a gun in your mouth and pull the trigger and send yourself to hell. Another told her that, quote, the penalty for lying about rape should be execution by hanging or firing squad. 
the Trump attorney, you might have seen her on TV uh, in recent weeks, had portrayed Carol as an attention seeker who could not prove that those threats that she received were actually as a result of Trump's denials rather than her own accusation. The Trump attorney tried to argue to the jury, this is about some people in their mother's basements who will always be mean on social media. Well, clearly the jury did not buy it. After a couple hours, they came out with this verdict. Remember, Trump skipped the first defamation trial. Uh, that you mentioned. He was found liable for sexual assault there, as well as the five million. So he showed up at this trial, and it led to a lot of theater, as we told you about on last week's podcast. Jill, you made a point of mentioning the jury there is anonymous. The judge actually told the jury, which was seven men and two women, that they're free to speak publicly, but they should not reveal the identity given the state of our politics right now, that you never disclose that you were on this jury, is uh, what the judge told them. Now, uh, Trump is immediately going to appeal the verdict. It's unclear when or if he will actually have to pay this amount of money. Remember, there's the first $5 million plus his $83 million. Jill, I was watching Aftermath coverage on Fox on Friday, and they had a uh, conservative legal scholar, a guy named John Yu. You might know his name. He was a, a Bush administration official who actually was controversial because he defended torture at Gitmo uh, post 9-11. So very conservative guy who's defended Trump a lot in the past. And he basically was like, I can't believe Trump's lawyers can't get him to shut up and tell him that every time he says something about E. Jean Carroll, it's now going to cost him another 10 or $20 million. So he can criticize the justice system. But ultimately, like, he just needs to know that ultimately, he's now lost two defamation cases. And yet he continues here to attack her. And already, you've seen a, another post on Friday. So will there be a third defamation trial? So that was fascinating uh, to watch over the weekend, because, you know, many people are asking about this amount of money. But I think it speaks to effectively, the court telling Trump, just shut up already. You've already had a ruling. And ultimately, what is an amount of money that'll get you to understand that defamation is not okay and it's having an impact on this woman's life? Meanwhile, back on the campaign trail, Trump still dominates as Nevada and South Carolina vote next month. And Trump looking like he's going to win both. Nikki Haley said yesterday that regardless, she is committed to staying in the Republican presidential race, at least through Super Tuesday. She wouldn't say whether she would still be in the race by the time the party's nominating convention rolls around in July. Yeah, so Super Tuesday is the uh, first Tuesday of March. That's when more than a dozen states will vote. It's hard to see, Jill, if she gets embarrassed in her home state of South Carolina, how she can make it there. But at the same time, she is the only other person really left in the race here. So she's sort of just waiting this out uh, and seeing if you know she strikes lightning in some way, shape or form. But it does not look good for her right now. On Super Tuesday, you have a lot of big states voting. you got California, you got Texas. And the Trump people over the last four years have made a point of really getting involved in state Republican parties and changing the rules to benefit him. And so California is basically winner take all. Texas is winner take all. What does that mean? Even if it's a 55-45 split or a 52-48 split, unless Nikki Haley wins, Trump takes home all the delegates, and this is a delegate fight. So uh, the issue she's going to face is right now, if you search delegate totals for Trump and Haley, she's pretty close. But after Super Tuesday, you could have a situation where he's beating her by hundreds and hundreds of delegates, and it'll be basically impossible for her to overtake him unless she can actually win states. And that comes as even though you have Illinois, Ohio, New York, Pennsylvania, a bunch of big states that'll vote after Super Tuesday. By Super Tuesday, 50% of delegates will be awarded. And with a lot of these winner-take-all states and, and, and Trump really organized uh, going into this election cycle, uh, this thing could be over. A lot of political commentators have noted that whatever you think of Trump and his style or his politics, 
his campaign this time around, as you said, much more organized in previous years. Yeah, yeah. 2016 was chaos. Even the 2020 reelect was chaotic at, at many points. And, you know, they, they didn't quite know how all the systems worked. And he had a bunch of newbies, political newbies, etc. This time around, he's hired like a very serious operation that ensured they learned the rules and learned how to change the rules uh, to benefit him. And you're seeing the results of that now. From the Hill, after being grounded earlier this month to go through inspections, Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes returned to the skies, and it came several weeks after a midair blowout occurred on an Alaska Airlines flight. Alaska Airlines resumed commercial flights on the Boeing 737 MAX 9 jetliners Friday afternoon with a flight from Seattle to San Diego. The airline said the planes will only return to the air after the rigorous inspections are completed and each plane is deemed airworthy, according to FAA requirements. Alaska's chief operating officer, Constance Van Mulen, was on the first MAX 9 flight and sat next to the window in the same row, row 26, where the blowout occurred on the earlier flight. Yeah, I thought that was a nice move by executive there saying, you know, like, I'm going to reassure everyone by sitting in that seat myself. So notable move there. Remember, though, United has the most number of these jets. They resumed their flights on Saturday after they got a green light from U.S. regulators. The FAA gave them basically a set of orders to get them back in the air uh, midweek last week. And so uh, they got that underway. And this is a big deal for United, by the way. They have the largest fleet of MAX 9s. The grounding caused thousands of flights to be canceled across the U.S. Hundreds of thousands of travelers have been impacted here. In fact, the airline is projecting a first quarter loss uh, of revenue, mainly due to the effects of the grounding. As we told you last week, the latest understanding right now is that the particular plane that had the incident uh, with Alaska was getting work done by Boeing. Someone there failed to put four bolts into this plug door that kept it locked in. At least that's according to a whistleblower. Uh, remember, these plug doors basically fill what would be an emergency exit, depending on the plane configuration. It looks like a window if you're sitting inside the plane. Bottom line, those four bolts need to be there. Effectively, they were not put in. Alaska and United have now been inspecting all their planes. And by the way, finding missing bolts, finding loose bolts. So there's a lot of questions being asked of Boeing. Their CEO was on Capitol Hill last week, and he is under fire. There was a Financial Times piece over the weekend with uh, a bunch of airline execs, Airline Pilots Association, saying it might be time for him to go. And remember, the current CEO of Boeing came in in 2020 to fix the situation because of the MAX 8 disaster in 2018-2019. He's had four years to fix it. It appears some people are losing patience with him now. From ABC News, millions came across fake, sexually explicit AI-generated images of Taylor Swift on social media this week, underscoring for many the need to regulate potential nefarious uses of AI technology. The White House press secretary said Friday that they are alarmed by what happened to Swift Online and that Congress should take legislative action. A variety of sexually inappropriate and offensive fake images created by AI of Swift were making the rounds on X, formerly known as Twitter, to the disgust of many people on the platform. AI images are pictures that are generated through artificial intelligence software using a text prompt. It can be done without a person's consent. Users on the platform have raised fears about how easily AI can be used to post fake images, violating the subject's privacy. Some are also taking action to report the Swift posts. Over the weekend, X blocked all searches for Taylor Swift entirely. Any searches for terms like Taylor Swift or Taylor AI 
returned an error message for several hours over the weekend. Yeah, that change actually meant that even legitimate content with her, you know, one of the world's most popular stars, was hard to view on the site. Uh, before the move on X, Swift fans actually tried to respond and deal with it themselves by using hashtags like Taylor AI or Taylor Photos with messages that promoted real clips of Swift to try to hide all the uh, fake stuff that was going around. It's just the latest example here of how social media organizations are scrambling to tackle uh, what what's called deep fakes, realistic images and audio generated using AI that can be abused to portray prominent individuals. Overwhelmingly, Jill, not surprisingly, uh, the target is women in many of these cases. On Tuesday, two lawmakers on Capitol Hill reintroduced a bill that would make non-consensual sharing of digitally altered photos a federal crime. Uh, as they wrote, the images may be fake, but their impacts are very real. Uh, so as we've been telling you for a while, this is Capitol Hill, Congress kind of catching up uh, to where the technology is going here. All right, speaking of Taylor Swift here from CBS Sports, the Super Bowl matchup is set and Taylor's boyfriend, Travis Kelsey, and his Kansas City Chiefs will be facing off against the San Francisco 49ers in this year's Super Bowl. I'll begin with the NFC with the 49ers. It was an incredible comeback win for San Francisco on Sunday, they beat the Detroit Lions. They were down by 17 at halftime. And then uh, an incredible back and forth in the second half. The 49ers outscoring Detroit 27 to 7 in the second half to win. You really had to watch all the way till the end uh, for this game. Really amazing game. Do feel for my friends in Detroit, though. Detroit still after this year, is the only NFC team to never make a Super Bowl. The 49ers, by the way, are trying to win their first Super Bowl since 1995. They were in the 2020 Super Bowl, interestingly, against the Kansas City Chiefs. So this is a rematch of the 2020 Super Bowl. Speaking of the Chiefs, they're now going to their fourth Super Bowl in the last five seasons after their win yesterday, 17-10 over the Baltimore Ravens, Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, and of course, Taylor Swift, among those on the field, celebrating the big win and the return to a very familiar place for this team, the Super Bowl. And Moshe, if you think that people are exaggerating when they say that young girls are now watching <laughs> NFL football, this game was on while we were celebrating my brother's birthday. And he has two young daughters, plus my daughter, were literally watching and screaming every time Taylor Swift was on the screen. Yeah. And then she also ran onto the field after they won and they were screaming again. And they were like, how many touchdowns did Kelsey get? And it, <laughs> it was just so funny because they know nothing about football and are clearly extremely interested all of a sudden in the NFL. Jill, the estimate right now is that Taylor Swift has had a $330 million impact on the Kansas City Chiefs and the NFL this season. That's the estimate um, so far in terms of jerseys sold, ratings, uh, all basically what you're describing. Okay, so the Chiefs hope to repeat as NFL champions after winning it all last year. They're going to try to be the first team since the 2003-2004 Patriots to win back-to-back -back Super Bowls. Quarterback Patrick Mahomes and coach Andy Reid still have a ways to go before reaching some of the Pats' records, though. Tom Brady and coach Bill Belichick won six Super Bowls if the Chiefs win this year, it will be the quarterback and coach's third win together. Super Bowl 58 takes place in two weeks in Las Vegas. It kicks off at 6.30 p.m. Eastern on Sunday, February 11th, and it airs on CBS. Usher will be headlining the halftime show this year. 
And one more a note, Jill, on Taylor Swift, because, you know, there's a lot to talk about here. People are already looking at, like, how will she make the game? Because she actually, her tour now it has reached Asia. So she's going to be playing four nights in Japan through February 10th. She will then have to fly back thousands of miles to Vegas to be at the Super Bowl. And then she will have to fly thousands of miles back to Melbourne, Australia, where her tour day just starts a couple days after the Super Bowl. So uh, people are already calculating that the 17-hour time difference uh, works in her favor (laughs) from Japan to make it uh, for the Super Bowl uh, to root on Travis and the Chiefs. By the way, in Taylorology here, this will be the 13th Chiefs game of the season that she's attending. That's her lucky number. Mm. So, you know, if you weren't looking at the actual stats or how the teams match up, it'll be the 13th game Taylor attends. There are no such thing as coincidences, Mosh. <laughs> the, the NFL has outdone themselves by putting this whole thing together this year, Jill. <laughs> All right, finally, on this day in history, we begin in 1820. Ten years after mental illness forced him to retire, King George III, one of our favorite kings here in America, the British king who lost the American colonies, died at the age of 81 on this day in 1820. Uh, The loss of the colonies, we were the most profitable colonies for the British king, contributed to growing opposition for him. So the final years were not good for him. He was actually declared permanently insane in the year 1810. His son effectively took over and then he would pass away 10 years later. Back here in the U.S. on this day in 1845, Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven was first published, appearing in the New York Mirror for the first time. On this day in 1936, the U.S. Baseball Hall of Fame elected its first group of members in Cooperstown. Pretty remarkable class, Jill. In 36, you had Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, and Honus Wagner. Not related. (laughs) Honus Wagner, not related to Jill Wagner, but Jill, just want you to know, I think he has one of the most valuable baseball cards in history. There's like a couple of them and they're worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. So if he had been in the family, I would have hoped he would have left you one of them. (laughs) No. No. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) All right. And finally, on this day in 2002, George W. Bush in his State of the Union address described Iraq, Iran, and North Korea as the axis of evil for the first time. It was a major part of his foreign policy. And we end here with a little pop culture and music, as we always do on this day, 43 years ago. Dolly Parton's 9 to 5 hit number one on the Billboard charts. Uh, Obviously, the song came out as part of the movie there. She was actually, Dolly was recruited by Jane Fonda to be in the movie. And apparently when Jane came to Dolly, it was like, I want you to be in this film. Dolly responded, I'll only do it if I can write the theme song. And I think she killed it, Jill. Crushed it. (laughs) Couldn't couldn't have possibly done better. It's It's a top 10 Dolly hit. And I think I've said before, just a silly, fun movie. If you haven't seen it in a while, it's like you just watch it and you're like, what is happening? But it's just great. All right. For everyone out there getting ready to work nine to five on this Monday. uh, Thank you for listening to the Mo News podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the app store. And thanks to all of you who joined Mo News Premium over the weekend. We took our weekend Instagram news coverage over to the Premium Insta account this weekend. So hope all of you over there enjoyed it. If you're members, we also have some extra premium pods uh, we've been putting out. So definitely check that out right now 
over at mo.news slash premium. It's a way to get extra content, get weekend content, and support what we're doing here at Mo News. Okay, bye everybody. Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.